This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about public and private spaces occupied by the ancestral Puebloans and Fremont peoples with Elizabeth Hora Cook. It's a good show. Stay with us. People are really fascinating, right? And the, uh, God, there's just such variety to human life across time and across the planet. Different ways of getting the same job done. It's really fascinating. On today's show, we explore how people might have used public spaces and private spaces in the past with Elizabeth Hora Cook. Elizabeth works at the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. For her work, Elizabeth has thought about how people who lived in the desert southwest in the past might have differentiated between communal places where everyone was welcome and private places like granaries and dwellings. Through these differentiations, Elizabeth tries to understand what society might have been like for ancestral Puebloans and Fremont people who lived on the Colorado Plateau. I was wondering if we could start with you explaining the difference between uh, rock art research and archaeology. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's not really any difference. They're one and the same. I think that maybe the practitioners, some archaeologists don't do a lot of rock art research and some people who are really focused on rock art don't necessarily go out for a degree in archaeology but you know it's all parts of the same puzzle so i come at it with a bachelor's and soon a master's in science in archaeology so that's sort of my way into rock art and so when i look at rock art i'm not really looking at what is the meaning behind it what were the feelings and the motivations behind whoever made rock art I'm more looking at, well, how does it pattern on the landscape and what can those patterns tell us about human behavior at large? So I think that's a little bit different than how a lot of people look at rock art, which is I want to know about the panel that I'm standing right in front of because it feels so human, right? Explain to me a little bit more about how you do that. I have access to a pretty wide data set here in the state of Utah. Archaeological sites are housed at my office, really, the State Historic Preservation Office up in Salt Lake City. So from pretty much every inch of land in the state that isn't privately owned or privately held, we get information about where archaeological sites are. And that includes rock art. And that also includes, you know, granaries and scatters of artifacts. So all of that is housed at my office, and so I'm sitting amongst a bunch of files all day thinking about what's in those files. I have the availability and the ability, rather, to um, to get GIS data on these, to map all of them. And we have some wonderful mappers in our office, Ari Leaflang, Deb Miller, um, Tessie Burningham. They're a great resource for helping people figure out where sites are occurring on landscapes. And so that's what we did for the rock art. We looked at where is rock art occurring and 
is that reflective of patterns of human behavior? And what I was looking for specifically is, are there differences in areas where public access to rock art, rock art that is easily accessible to everyone, uh, you're just walking through the canyon, you're a prehistoric person, you're new in town, the first thing you're going to see is rock art. The things that you're less likely to see are things that are privately held, like granaries, stuff that is held by families or clans or larger bands of people. You know, it's the difference between your billboard and the signs that you might have in your house, right? Your, your pantry. Um, so looking at how these two things are patterned differently on the landscape, I thought would show me where is public space and where is private space. And from there, start to, God, I don't, I don't really want to say get in the heads of people because you can't ever do that, but you start to see how people were building the landscape around them and how they were building and using the space. So I would assume you would have to focus in on a, a group of people or a time period with trying to construct these? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, a lot of these things, it's hard to get a time period on them. So I chose the Fremont period because we just have so much stuff. It's Fremont or Ancestral Puebloan. And it's a nice period of just a few centuries when people were typically doing the same sort of stuff. A pretty conservative, pretty traditional society where changes were a little bit more glacial than they are in modern times. So looking at Fremont granaries, which have a very particular architectural style to them, and we can date them through radiocarbon or optically stimulated luminescence. So using those things that are very datable. And then on the rock art side, using Fremont rock art, which around here, again, is very big and bold and bright. You know, think All-American Man, think of um, the horned headdresses that you see on human figurines around um, the canyons around Moab, stuff like that. Big, obvious stuff. So give me a time period and maybe like a geographic extent of the Fremont. So starting around 0 AD up here is when we start seeing maize agriculture. And around the time that maize and, you know, beans and squash enter the picture, that's really when we see people settling down and starting to behave differently and also starting to make that different material culture that looks Fremont. The reasons as to why, I don't know that anyone necessarily knows. There's one explanation that it's climate-based, that, you know, there's some competition for resources and people have to farm because now there's just not the availability of foraged foods on the landscape. But I truly don't know what the answer is. And just the same way, after 1300, I don't know what happened to those people. Um, obviously, there were still and are still a lot of people today who claim lineage back to the Fremont. So it's not like they vanished from the face of the earth, but it's possible that there were many fewer people. And certainly some people migrated out and some other people definitely came into the area, but you know, there's so many different things going on at the same time. It's such a complicated picture. And th that's one of the real puzzles of archaeology that the people are still sorting out. Fremont were an agricultural, semi-agricultural, semi-nomadic society that existed over most of Utah from about, well, let's say, 0 AD to 400 AD on the early end to about 1300 AD on the late end. 
And it's a little hard to get their geographic distribution because this is an archaeological culture, right? This isn't like the ancestral Puebloans where we know their direct descendants. We can talk to them, the Hopi, Zuni, Akama, all of the Pueblos. Um, the Fremont, it's a little bit tougher to get a handle on them. Um, their descendants live in most of the tribes in the West now. So what we see as Fremont is what we look, we what we consider to be Fremont is what we see as having certain material culture traits, certain kinds of artifacts, certain kinds of buildings that they made. And we see those material culture traits, those artifacts, uh, extending from the Colorado Plateau down here in Moab, all the way north, some, you know, really to the Wyoming Basin. Some people feel like they have Fremont-style pit houses up in Wyoming. And then as far west as Nevada, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Baker in Nevada, tiny little border town where there's a Fremont village. And then a lot of my work comes out of Dinosaur National Monument and the Uinta Basin over in the northeastern part of the state. So, and everywhere in between, all up, you know, Nine Mile Canyon and the Great Salt Lake, the Provo area, tons and tons of Fremont people all over the place. You define Fremont by their material culture. I was wondering if you could just give some descriptions of what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of variety, but generally speaking, what what normal people and what archaeologists as well can see on the landscape are things left behind by agricultural people because they built big, sturdy things that last through time. Versus people who are hunting and gathering, they leave kind of a lighter trace on the landscape. And so it's important to remember that the Fremont had both sides of this same coin. They were farmers, but they were also foragers, hunters and gatherers. And so on the farming end, the big, bold stuff we see on the landscape are things like pit houses. And I think if you go up to Torrey, Anasazi State Park, you can visit one also in Fremont State Park. They've recreated these sort of dugout, semi-subterranean pits in the ground that aren't really a lot bigger than, you know, whatever your bedroom was when you were growing up. You know, not massive, 12 feet by 12 feet. Dug in a few feet down and then thatched on top with um, a cribbed structure of logs and branches and then on top of that you pack on smaller branches and mud it's a really great it's a really energy efficient building Mm. it stays really warm in the summertime you can imagine like just living in a mud hut and then in the winter time you've got your little fire in there and they will leave a space open in the very middle of the roof so that smoke can escape So it's really well insulated. It's great for all seasons. If you were more mobile, if you were a Fremont person who was hunting and gathering, you might just use something like a a rock alcove. Like around here in Moab, you have those nice rock alcoves, usually along um, streams and rivers. You could just hang out right in there. Bring a juniper mat, roll that out. People later would build wiki-ups too, which is like taking that top part of the pit house, that cribbed area, and just putting it straight on the ground, building it out of sagebrush, juniper, whatever you have around. So you described wonderfully the material culture 
and you gave some examples of rock art that is around here that the Fremont uh, drew or pecked, but I was wondering if you could kind of describe them for people who have never seen, like, what would be, if you came up across some rock art, what would be a Fremont style? Yeah, well, if you've never seen Fremont rock art in person, you might have seen it just by being exposed to popular culture. There's a lot of images of Fremont rock art that make it onto things like the History Channel and in magazines because some of it is so incredible. On these rock faces we have out here in Moab and really around the state of Utah, uh, you'll get a really dark patina on that rock. And that patina can sometimes be black or even like a bluish black or a very dark brown. And when you take a rock and you chip away at the surface, the natural color of the rock pops through very brightly. It's really pale and it's super high contrast. And so people would use this pecking technique where they would chip away at the patina of the large piece of sandstone, chip away at it to create an image. Often it was a human with a big horned headdress and jewelry, maybe a sash, a belt, Oftentimes they would have a shield in one hand, sometimes like a really big sack, like a bag in one hand. Um, Spirals, a lot of spirals. I know that some uh, Puebloans these days interpret those as being indicative of migration routes. And then we also see a lot of what we call quadrupeds or zoomorphs, animals, deer, um, bighorn sheep are big. I've seen a couple of dogs too, which is really cute. So we have that in that pecked style, but then also people would use really brilliant colored paints. And the only paint that really lasts through time, it looks like, is this red ochre that we find a lot around here. And so if you think about over in Barrier Canyon, we have something called the Grand Gallery or the Great Gallery. And it has these huge towering, these like looming ghost-like figures that look like long stretched out people and the bottoms of them sort of fade away. That ochre sort of fades into the pale tan of the sandstone and they have their eyes left as natural surfaces. So, you know, they've got these glowing eyes inside these red faces. And so that red stands out, but there could have been a ton of other colors, right? There could have been this chalky kind of white that you see sometimes Charcoal, really easy to make. You can make charcoal and have brilliant dark black across these areas. All-American Man has some blue on there, too. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame that when we look at rock art, even the stuff that's really brilliant and gorgeous, a thousand years ago, who knows what it might have looked like. It, it might have been really incredible, something that you could see from a mile away, bright and colorful. Yeah, tell me more about that. So you said earlier that you're looking at this spatial arrangements of artifacts and so and rock art and so you see rock art kind of as a billboard what makes you think that interesting question i don't know that we know precisely what the role is right there's going to be a lot of potentially a lot of different roles But one facet of it that i look at sort of is as a billboard or as a way sign something that is going to be widely recognizable to people across the landscape. 
So I mentioned that the Fremont world extends from down here around Moab all the way up to the top of the Utah border. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And people moved a lot, right? You have this component of people who are staying put in farming for at least a part of their lives. And then this component of people that are sort of roving around. Those people need some kind of lingua franca. They need some kind of common language and common suite of symbols and elements, things that are going to be recognizable to them so that when they go into a new area, they know what's going on and they know where they are. And so rock art could serve that function because we do see across the Fremont world, even though we have a lot of stylistic differences, we see the same sorts of images repeated again and again. We see people with big horned headdresses who are maybe leaders or great warriors. We see those migration patterns, those spirals. We see the same things again and again. And I can't claim to be able to read it. I don't think that anyone can. I don't know what that story is that each individual rock art panel is telling us. But I do know that whoever was looking at it was supposed to know what that means. Whether they come from the Uinta Basin or whether they come from the Severe Valley, when they come down here to Moab and they see those familiar patterns, they're reading something into that, potentially. And so that combination of being highly visible, bright, can be seen from long distances, and then when you get up close and you start to interrogate it, the idea that I have that maybe people can read that to some extent, that makes me think that those are really public spaces. When you drive into Moab now, You see a sign for a restaurant. Maybe you don't speak English, but there's a picture of a burger. And you know that you can get something to eat. Something like that. There's there's something like that going on. So what have you... What is your work with all of the mapping of understanding the way these different public and private places are arranged? What has that told you about this culture? Interesting. Yeah, so... I haven't been able to get into a lot of different areas. Right now, I've only looked at one really small area up in Dinosaur National Monument, but it does look like there is a difference in patterns between areas that have rock art and areas that have storage features like granaries, that there is some sort of demarcation of public and private space. So that makes me think that maybe no one in society, with very few exceptions, is totally equal because there are just fundamental differences between people. And one of those differences is access to space. And so if you are living in Jones Hole Canyon all year round, the canyon that I was working in, you have access to that space. You have people there. You have connections with people. You have, you're a part of that larger social network out there. Versus if you're a traveler coming up from Nine Mile Canyon, maybe you don't have those sorts of social connections. And so the rock art, when you see rock art, you know that you're in a space that's designed for you. And people know that if you wander into a space that's not designed for you, that maybe you're not supposed to be there. And so if if we want to look at past human behavior, we need to start thinking about how people created their space, I suppose how people created their space and for the Fremont, because we do have so much of this sturdy architecture and sturdy material culture, we can start to read into that a little bit, or at least I hope anyway, (laughs) we'll see. And so you mentioned that you've done this, you've looked at things in dinosaur. Are you hoping to expand and look at 
greater areas and ask these questions? Yeah, I am. And I think Moab would actually be a really great area if you think about Cane Creek. There's definitely something going on there with social construction of space, right? There's a variety of different kinds of archaeological sites that are there, and you can walk through it, and you can see that for yourself. And so I was thinking about maybe starting with a couple of the canyons down here. Um, The problem that we have for a lot of the canyons is the problem of dating that you mentioned. So we're still fishing around, still casting around for a good data set. I mean, there are ancestral Puebloan people here too. Yeah, here in Moab, you have the really unique situation of two different groups that we define differently archaeologically, bumping up against each other, living in the same space at the same time. Um, Down in St. George, we have a similar situation. I've heard people say Frizazi to sort of, you know, to talk about how it's difficult to differentiate those cultures and it's probably stupid to differentiate those cultures in some circumstances, right? But yeah, so here in Moab, we do have Ancestral Puebloan and Fremont and they do live in the same place and they do look very similar. The difference, as far as I understand it, is in that rock art, that that art, that um, durable architecture that I'm talking about, cer- certain types of material culture. And maybe when you're working on, when you're living on this frontier, like people were between Ancestral Puebloan and Fremont, maybe people were intentionally making things different to, to mark their uh, to mark their membership in, in one or another ethnic identity, but maybe not. Maybe there is, I mean, Fremont, that's that's an English word. Well, that's a French word. Fremont, right? John, it's named after John C. Fremont, who, you know, explored this area for the very first time. Fremont is not a native word. Fre- <laughs> Fremont is, no one ever called themselves Fremont. And in prehistory, it's quite possible no one ever, well, it's almost certain they don't call themselves ancestral Puebloan, but I don't know. I don't know how to differentiate these culture groups other than material culture. Do you see any examples of rock art or material culture that blends that you see a clear like, oh, that is they combined their styles? You know, I end up working much further north but my friend in town hannah russell has lived here and worked here for you know a decade or more and she was telling me a couple years ago about a site around here in moab oh i'm gonna get it backwards but it either had puebloan rock art and fremont ceramics or the other way around and it's really difficult to date rock art Some people might say it's impossible to date rock art, but I'll stick with it's really difficult to date rock art. And so it's hard to know if that rock art was present or created at the time that that other cultures, um, that other culture lived in that same rock shelter. But there's no reason to think it's not possible, right? And, you know, there's got to be some intermarrying. There's got to be some, like, Montagues and Capulets kind of stuff going on, if they are indeed very separate cultures who want to be very separate. Yeah, there's there's definitely blending. Um, the lifestyles out here, there's some blending. People are farming more down here, who we would consider Fremont, than up in the Great Salt Lake area. And again, in part, that's probably because the environment is better for it. And in the Great Salt Lake, 
maybe you didn't need to farm all that often. But yeah, there's similarities, but we do see differences, which is interesting. Uh, I was wondering how much the actual place is going to play into public and private spaces. How do you mean? Um, Like, I was just thinking of Cane Creek and how, well, I'm thinking of examples where I can think of a granary and Mm -hmm. rock art and that um, the place itself is going to define what's a public and what's a private space just because of the layout of the landscape. Yeah, it's a it's a recursive thing that you have a granary that is signifying private space, and even if you find it in the public setting, that might still be a private space, right? Mm-hmm. Like like driving your car downtown. We define that as private property. Right. <laughs> car is mobile, granary is not mobile, but eh, the analogy is not great. Yeah, there is some research done by Shannon Boomgarden up at the University of Utah about what what to call these granaries that occur very visibly and her idea was that it is still well she wasn't looking at public and private space she was looking at different kinds of storage styles and so even though that's in a public area it's still very much guarded by thieves because everyone can see what's happening up there Mm-hmm. If you need a ladder to get up there, or if you need to climb, and you're 30 feet above the village below, every single person knows who you are and knows who's getting into that granary. And if you're not allowed to have access to it, what are you going to do when you get down? You know? So that's a that's a situation where there is that private space put in a public area, and it's using the publicness of it as its own defense in defense of private space, which is really interesting. And I would suspect that given some of the visibility of some of the granaries in Moab, that you do have something like that going on up here versus Jones Hole Canyon, where things are really tucked away. You have to really know where those granaries are. And the way that the, the sandstone kind of sweeps up from the valley floor, sometimes the best entrance to get into one of these alcoves where there's a granary is 200 meters back behind you on the left. You know, sometimes you really need to know the path to get there. So two different ways of keeping your stuff safe. Public and private, I guess. Using the public against you. Using the public for the private. What first got you interested in archaeology, and especially here in the Southwest? I've just always been a nerd, I guess. Starting in, like, the sixth grade, so I think I was 11. I wanted to be an archaeologist, and so that is what I set my whole life to doing. I started out um, really loving Egyptian archaeology. That was simply not feasible. I come from California, so the Southwest was sort of the natural way to do that. I had a really great undergraduate advisor, and if anyone else is thinking about going into the sciences, I really can't say enough how important it is to have a great undergraduate advisor and to be passionate about it yourself, right? You have to do a lot of the legwork, it turns out. You have to go out there and bug your advisor or bug some other faculty about what it is they're doing this summer and if you can carry some of that water for them. And, you know, sometimes they'll let (laughs) you. So, yeah, so this is all I've ever wanted to do was archaeology. And now I work at... Utah State Historic Preservation Office, so I'm a little bit more of a bureaucrat, but I get to still at least see archaeology 
dimly through a window. It's it's really great. It's a great it's great working up there because I get to see a little bit about everything that's going on in the state. Even though I don't have boots on the ground anymore, I still get to see it from afar. And it keeps me in contact with a lot of different archaeologists, which is always great and always super fun. Living the dream. This is all I ever wanted. What is it that you've always liked about archaeology? Studying people but not having to talk to them directly? I don't know. (laughs) Not having to make eye contact? No, people are really fascinating, right? And the, uh, God, there's just such variety to human life across time and across the planet. Different ways of getting the same job done. It's really fascinating. And I've always sort of liked... um, this uh, this notion of haves and have-nots, this kind of Marxist archaeology, right? I really like it. I think that, uh, personally, I think that social inequity drives so much of social structure, and I think that people internalize that to such a large degree that it really colors your thinking and it, it colors um, your way of life. And archaeologically, that's an incredibly sticky subject to get into. So that's really fun. You know, that's really, it's friggin' difficult. It's fun. (laughs) What do you enjoy about being a scientist? Again, like, this is all I've ever done. And growing up, I was really good at science, would score really high on science tests and really low on math tests. So you do archaeology. It's the closest you can get to, I don't know. Um... Yeah, I don't know what it is I love about science because I've never really done anything differently. I I don't know. I, I like collaboration. I guess I'll say that. I really like being able to work with a bunch of different people from a variety of different backgrounds. So, you know, this wasn't my thesis research, this, this rock art stuff. But in my thesis research, I did a lot of dendrochronology. And I got to work with people from Utah State University's College of Natural Resources, a dendrochronologist, Justin DeRose. And he was absolutely fantastic. And he just has such a different way of coming at questions and coming at problems. And, you know, we need camp at night. It would be me and Justin and my advisor, Judson Finley at USU in the anthro department. And we would just kick it around about different sorts of questions and different sorts of data sets that exist out there. Um, I really love that. I really love that. I, I really love interdisciplinary research. It's, um, what's a good word? It's really exciting. It's really exciting and really energizing. That's awesome. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, well, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Good. Thank, <laughs> thank you for coming. This has been really yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we were able to, I'm really glad that we were able to do this. Thank yeah. you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU. Thank you.